Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading, which can be found on page 975, is from St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 1 to 15. He called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth. It will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, as we turn to this passage in uh, Matthew's Gospel, we pray that you give us the right hearts to hear you speak, and especially to be taught by the Lord Jesus. Help us to stand alongside the disciples and listen to him, and submit to him, and put into practice in the right way, in our time and place, what he teaches. And we ask for your help in this, in Jesus' name. Amen. As you sit down, if you could be turning back in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 10, that's page 975. Uh, There's also a, a handout in amongst the papers you were given on the way in, so you might like to use that to make notes or or follow along. Now, fear of failure. 
And I think about just how many things we don't do because of the fear of failure. Now, for me, that includes all sorts of things, all kinds of things, dancing, singing, uh, many, many different kinds of sports, embroidery, knitting, um, many more I perhaps haven't thought of. Uh, For all those things, I estimate, you know, I judge, I think, quite rightly, that that my chance, if I attempted those things, the chance of failure is really quite high. So the fear of failure is quite high. So I don't do them. Uh, Which, in most of those examples, is a good thing. You know, my, my children are extremely relieved that I put this principle into practice and I hold back from singing and, most especially, from dancing for fear of failure. The world in general should be deeply relieved. It's a good thing. But here's a bad thing. Uh, the fear of failure in evangelism. The fear of failure when it comes to speaking openly to people about Jesus and the coming kingdom. I remember from last week we were being encouraged to see people the way that Jesus sees them as harassed and, and helpless, struggling under the, uh, under the shadow of death and, and thereby to have compassion on them. And we were also saying that um, that lack of compassion is one of the main reasons why we hold back in, in outreach and that dwelling on Jesus' compassion can help us with that. But even if that does help us to find a degree of compassion, still I think we may hold back. We might hold back. Still, we find ourselves quite reluctant to do this. Now, why is that? Well, for me, it is very much this very thing, this fear of failure. It's the fear of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, of speaking about Jesus, but getting a negative response or a bad response. And that fear means that I do much less of it than I should. So here's the the one big thing that I want us to remember from Jesus' teaching this morning. If you remember nothing else, remember this. Jesus says to get a bad response is not failure. It may be sad, it may be disappointing, it may even be heartbreaking, but it is not failure. Negative responses are 100% to be expected as we're sent out to test people with the good news of the kingdom. Now we learn about that as Matthew shows us in a a very special example of what we called last week gospel multiplication. It is, you can see here, in fact, the very first example of gospel multiplication as Jesus appoints and sends 12 of his disciples out to multiply what he's been doing across the towns and villages of Israel. So we'll see this morning that yes, these are, these are special instructions for a particular time, for particular people, and they do need to be read as such. Uh, but as I put on your handout, their purpose is to show us gospel multiplication in action. And uh, in this special example, that they're showing us Jesus' special compassion for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But also that these verses prepare us Prepare all subsequent gospel multipliers to to deal with this issue of rejection. We're going to look at that under two headings. First, we're going to look at these first gospel multipliers being sent out. That's uh, verses 1 to 10 especially. And uh, then we're going to focus down on how they are prepared for the possibility of rejection. 
uh, looking especially at verses 11 to 15. So verses 1 to 10, the first gospel multiplier sent out. And as we begin to look at this, I do need to justify my claim, I think, that uh, these are special instructions. Just have a look at some of the detail with me. I think we'd have to say that Matthew really couldn't be more careful in showing us that uh, the beginning of these instructions is directed at uh, particular people at a particular time. So you can see that he highlights 12 named individuals. They're there in uh, verses 2 to 4. They are then sent out on a limited mission. Uh, Verses 5 to 6, they're sent out not to the Gentiles or to the Samaritans, just to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And uh, if you look ahead ahead in the chapter to verse 23, we can see that this particular mission was indeed to last just for a limited time. Now they are to go through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now we'll look at that verse again next week, but basically it means that these particular instructions, as they're outlined here, hold in their detail until the death and resurrection of Jesus. So this chapter is beginning, therefore, focused on a particular group of people doing a limited thing at a particular time. Now, having said that, it is true that uh, as the chapter proceeds, as the speech proceeds, Jesus' Jesus's teaching does gradually get more and more general. Look ahead to verses 32 and 33, for example. You can see that Jesus is talking about whoever acknowledges me and whoever disowns me. Whoever is very general, isn't it? Or over in verse 37, it's about anyone who loves his father or mother more than Jesus. So what we've got here is we've got a chapter that begins with a very particular focus on certain people at a particular time, but it does finish on this more general note, which with teaching that applies directly to all disciples in, in any age, including us. Now, all of that doesn't mean that there's nothing for us to learn about gospel multiplication from these first 15 verses. I do hope we'll see that. But it does mean that we need to be you know, just a little bit more careful as we do that. But although I've said that this is a special example of gospel multiplication in action, and these are therefore special instructions, uh, I do want to say that they're not at all surprising instructions. Uh, They are, in fact, exactly the instructions we would expect at this particular time in history. Have a look at the details again and uh, see with me that they all point to the disciples replicating exactly 12 times over what Jesus has been doing which of course is exactly what we'd expect gospel multiplication to look like at the time as Jesus has been going out with the good news of the kingdom the gospel news of the kingdom doing certain things now he draws his disciples in to participate in that and he sends them out to do exactly the same kinds of things and say that exactly the same kind of things too the verses 5 and 6 for example their mission is just to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, uh, which is exactly as Jesus' mission has been. Their message is, verse 7, the kingdom of heaven is near. Which, of course, is exactly what Jesus' message has been. Uh, Verse 8, they're to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, 
Chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew's Gospel have shown us that that is exactly what Jesus has been doing. We could even say that one of the reasons why they're not to take anything with them, that's verses 9 and 10, is that Jesus has been doing his ministry just like that. So we could summarize the general instructions here by saying that Jesus sends the 12 out, commanding them simply to do and say what he has done and said. You know, it's not a big surprise. And so his ministry and compassion is thereby replicated and multiplied across the towns of Israel. The chief worker, in other words, the chief worker in the harvest field has taken 12 men and he said, follow me and do as I do. Follow me and do as I do. And soon he's doing the work of 12 men. And so it is that this particular job at this particular time gets done. We try to work the same principle in our house after meals. Come and join us with the cleaning and uh, washing up, we say to the children cheerfully. It'll be fun. And they look at us as if we are completely mad, as if we just asked them to clean out the Algerian stables for a laugh or something like that. So it's all you know, a bit slow and reluctant. And I wish it could be like that scene in The Hobbit, if you've seen that, where the dwarves wash up in a a few minutes flat. That'd be great, wouldn't it? A bit twee, but, you know, great. And I, I, do, I look on other families, and I, I, with some envy, I think, um, that manage all this a bit better. Nevertheless, I'm convinced that the principle is sound. And what we're seeing here is that the principle of gospel multiplication is most certainly sound. But I suppose that the big burning question that we have as, as we're reading this, and you may have been thinking this is, as it was read out to us a little earlier, you know, what, are, what should this look like for us today? You know, if these verses describe what gospel multiplication looked like back then, what should it look like now? Well, now although there are no explicit answers to that question in these verses, no direct answers in these verses, I think if we look at Matthew's gospel as a whole, we'd have to say, we'd have to say this, We'd have to say the details for us must be different. They must be. And we know that for sure because at the end of Matthew's gospel stands the Great Commission, what's called the Great Commission. And the Great Commission explicitly changes some of these detailed instructions. In the Great Commission, all disciples of Jesus are sent out. Uh, Eleven first. But then all of them, not just 12 of them as, in, as here. And uh, what's said here in verse 5 is updated as the disciples are sent out explicitly, in fact, to the Gentiles, to the nations. You know, it's very different, isn't it? And in that context, uh, the kind of peculiar dress code that, that we find in verse 10 here, which would, as, as we'll see, have meant something to Jewish people, will no longer make much sense you know, to Gentile people. And we can expect other things to change too. See, the Great Commission is possible because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, which means that um, God's salvation can now go out to the whole world, just as he promised through Abraham. Uh, miracles like those in verse 8, which pointed to the resurrection, that, which pointed to this um, 
this wonderful thing of life bursting in under the shadow of death, that all of those are now fulfilled. In other words, we don't need these sorts of miracles quite so much to proclaim the rolling back of the shadow of death because we can go out and proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. So I do think it would be wrong to say that we must do things today exactly as Jesus says in these verses. And we'd have to say that those who, who, try, who try to do that don't necessarily do it very consistently. Um, I haven't observed much traveling around penniless and barefoot and uh, certainly not uh, much in the way of raising of the dead. But actually we'd have to say that that's okay. You know, that, that's okay. It doesn't have to be any of those details carried over to our time and place. It's the pattern which remains the same. They multiply gospel ministry in their setting. And so likewise, we should seek to multiply it in ours. And remember the heart of it. The heart of what we're trying to multiply here is Jesus' compassion. Jesus' compassion. And these verses do give us a special example of Jesus' compassion. Last week, we were thinking about chapter 9, verse 36, Jesus looking out on the crowds at the time and having compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This week, we see that compassion turn into quite radical action. Chapter 10, verse 6, the 12 disciples sent out with the good news of the kingdom to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. See how the pattern goes. He looks out on people who look like sheep. Then he sends the 12 to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And in doing that, Jesus is not just responding personally, individually to all, all, all that he sees before him. He's equipping and mobilizing others to do it too. And these verses are most certainly encouraging that, that pattern of compassion translating into gospel multiplying action. Now, that this is compassion worked out in action might not strike you as obvious at first glance. It does, this does, I think, at first glance, seem rather too abrupt behavior to be described as compassionate. Especially as we read on into verses 11 through to 15. You know, walking away from a house or a town, shaking the dust off your shoes might not sound like compassion. But I do want to persuade you that the compassion that Jesus felt and exhibited back in chapter 9 hasn't gone away. It's still being expressed right here. In fact, the strategy that Jesus instructs his disciples to use in this setting is a, is a strategy of maximum compassion for these particular people at that particular time. This is doing everything possible to test them out and provoke a positive response. Let us think that through with me. Imagine yourself as one of these people who are being reached out to, as one of the sheep of the, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, which is a, a person, okay, not a fluffy woolly thing. And you wake up one morning, someone knocking at the door. You answer, they give you the traditional Jewish welcome, the family greeting, if you like. Shalom, peace. You notice that they are traveling light. 
very light, in fact. It might dawn on you that they are, in fact, dressed like one of the Israelites were told to be dressed at the Exodus. You know, traveling light, ready to go, ready to move. Or it might occur to you that this is how the prophets used to travel around the land as well, with a kind of similar air of urgency about them. The, the, the dress is code for something. And you would certainly take note of the fact that this is someone at your door with verses 9 and 10, no money at all, not even a bag or any spare clothes. In other words, at that moment, every good instinct in you would be to invite them in and give them some food and water. Every good instinct. So at that moment, what's happening is that your heart is being tested. Your worthiness is being tested. To turn them away at that moment would be to show that you had a very hard heart indeed. This procedure that Jesus outlines for those people is doing everything possible to test you out and provoke a a good response. So that was uh, back then. What will this then look like for us? Now, I do believe that these verses encourage us in a continued compassion for, for Jewish people. It's not as if it stops at any point in history. But even if uh, we were involved in Jewish evangelism today, I doubt that all of these details would, would carry over. We'd just have to think it through. And certainly as we engage in the wider mission to the, to the nations, the details will not all carry over. But the principle will carry over. The principle is to present the gospel so clearly, so winsomely, so lovingly, that when people reject it, their hard hearts are exposed. Now I suspect that in most cases, that will not involve turning up barefoot, penniless and destitute at people's doors, hoping to be taken in as it does in these verses. You know, it just, it just depends. Sometimes with some people it may involve being relatively blunt, as we see here. Very often, on the other hand, it will involve extreme gentleness and patience. You know, it's whatever it takes to test people with the news of the kingdom. As the Apostle Paul said, This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. And here's the principle. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. Indeed, uh, the Apostle Paul stands as quite a helpful control, I think, on what this is going to look like in practice for us involved in that wider mission to the nations. And you'll know that when when Paul enters a town in the book of Acts, he does go first to the family. That is the priority. He goes first to the synagogue. And then when he comes sailing out through the window of the synagogue, he dusts himself off, goes down to the market preaches the good news to the Gentiles. And the way he goes about it depends, you know, it varies. With non-family, he's much, much more patient. He hangs around sometimes for years, you know, preaching for years at one particular place, over and over again, enormous patience. 
You see, these people know nothing at all. Uh, While the family have the scriptures, they should know better. But even with non-family, there are limits. When the welcome disappears, the persecution gets too great, he moves on, knowing that he has done his best to save people from the coming judgment. Paul's example also shows us someone who's learned one of the main lessons from these verses, which is, as I was hinting at earlier, when you go out with the gospel, as he did, don't be surprised by rejection. Saddened, yes. Hurt, maybe. Surprised, no. And that's the final thing we're going to think about this morning. Our verses 11 through to 15 especially prepare all gospel multipliers in any generation for rejection. All gospel multipliers prepared by Jesus for rejection. And you can see very clearly, I think, in these verses that as Jesus sends out the 12 in their mission to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, it's very clear that it's not going to be, if you like, triumphantly easy. So look at verses 12 through to 14. As you enter the home, says Jesus, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving or worthy, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. So you see what Jesus is saying, your offer of peace may not be reciprocated. You bring a welcome, but you may not be welcomed. You bring the news of the kingdom, but they may not listen to you. And of course, if that's a possibility, you can see how important it is for Jesus to warn his disciples about it in advance. Otherwise, they'd most likely give up at the first bad response. So he does need to say to them, if you follow these instructions, then you have discharged your responsibilities. If you've done it as I've said, then you have acted lovingly with compassion. And that means that if they reject you, you personally have not failed. And there are two things, two things I think you need to know if they do reject you, so you can understand what's going on here. Carry on with this task, not give up on it. And they are these. First, Jesus says that, you're, that our job is to test people, not to change them. Our responsibility is to go out and test them, test their responsiveness to the gospel. It's not, we're not responsible for changing them. Second, Jesus says, if they do reject you, it's only because they are rejecting you. Me. Now we can see that this is all about testing people, not changing them from the pattern that Jesus sets up here. So, verse 12 greet the house, bring the news of the kingdom. Verses 13 and 14 test the result. I think that's a fair way of putting it. Follow these instructions. You've done your best to act lovingly and with compassion to these people. You've tested them out. You've done everything you can to provoke a a good and and positive response. This should change our thinking. 
I think. Uh, Jesus, it's interesting what Jesus doesn't say here. Jesus doesn't say stay there until you've persuaded them to change their minds. It's your responsibility to make sure they change their minds or anything like that. He just says, test them, try them out. Search for a response. Do your best to search for a response. And if they respond, well, good, great. But if not, if it's become clear that they're not going to respond, then move on. That is not failure. That is an expected possibility and you need to be ready for it. But when that happens, if, you've, if you have been loving and winsome, it is not your responsibility. It's theirs and theirs alone. If they prove themselves like Sodom and Gomorrah, failing to welcome the messengers of the Lord and thereby rejecting the Lord, then it's them that face the consequences. And then secondly, because these disciples are multiplying exactly what Jesus has been doing, if someone does not welcome or receive them, and again, it is not a personal failure when that happens, it's because in the end they are not welcoming or receiving Jesus. And again, this is a, this is a general and enduring principle at the end of the chapter, this is verses 40 through to 41, where you see it expressed in very general terms, which does mean that we can apply it very directly to ourselves caught up in the mission to the nations. You can see it confirmed in verse 40, for example. If you look over the page very briefly. He who receives you receives me, says Jesus. And he who receives me receives the one who sent me. That is the principle as we go out with the gospel message. Someone takes the message of the kingdom to a house. That is effectively Jesus taking the message if we're rejected, it's not personal. If we're not rejected, then praise God. Now, put all of this together, and I think we can see this task of taking the good news out to people is rather like searching for something, searching for something valuable, hidden perhaps in an array of identical-looking containers. I remember when our, our daughter Lizzie uh, was about two years old, uh, we were looking for a new cooker in, in Comet. Uh, may it rest in peace. And we were going around and then we suddenly noticed that she wasn't wearing her shoes. And uh, what she'd done, she'd taken them off and put them inside one of them, the ovens, closed the door, and uh, then couldn't tell us which one it was. And so <laughs> quite a number of cookies in Comet at the time. And we had to check them all out one by one until we found them. It took a took some time. Slightly more seriously, a few years later, our children discovered that they could squeeze themselves into the lockers in the changing room at the swimming pool and close the door behind them. I can remember one, one instance going swimming with them and, and turning around in the changing room and no children. Just hundreds and hundreds of identical looking lockers. I guess I should have uh, left them there for a bit. So them right. And what we're seeing here is, is that evangelism is a bit like that. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus promises. Chapter 9, verse 37, the harvest is plentiful. You know, so there are responsive people out there. Many, many of them, in fact, far more than we might imagine. But, but, 
chapter 10, verse 14. Not everyone will be responsive. We have to keep trying until we find them. It's rather like looking through those lockers in the changing room. Now, see things like that, and rejection is just going to be part of the pattern, isn't it? It's just part, inevitable part of the process, rather like finding an empty locker. Once we're absolutely sure it really is empty, we move on. That might take some time, of course. We might want to be really careful about that. Like Paul, we might spend some considerable time testing people out, trying and trying, many, many, many years, perhaps. But we don't forget that there are other people to approach and there may come the time when we will want to move our energy from someone who seems to be clearly rejecting the gospel to someone else. Now none of this makes the the moment of rejection any easier. Last week I was hearing of someone inviting their friend to the the men's breakfast, in fact, and uh, finding that... it simply crashed the conversation, leaving a sort of embarrassing and awkward silence. Nothing that Jesus says here is going to make such moments pleasant for us. But they shouldn't surprise us. They shouldn't surprise us. And when people do categorically and finally reject the message, it's not, it's not the personal embarrassment that should hurt us. In fact, it's It's the fact that they have rejected Jesus. They've rejected someone no one in their right mind would reject. Now I began this morning by talking about how fear of failure can hold us back from doing things and when it holds people like me back from singing and most especially from dancing perhaps we're not too bothered about that perhaps we're rather pleased in fact. But when we see Jesus moved with compassion for people who are harassed and helpless, struggling under the shadow of death, desperately needing the good news of the kingdom, well then it should bother us when fear of failure holds us back from proclaiming that good news. But I hope we've seen this morning that Jesus doesn't want us to be held back by fear of failure. He wants us to realise that rejection is going to be an inevitable part of the process as we test out many, many people's responses. He wants me to know that if I proclaim the good news of the kingdom and do it lovingly and winsomely and patiently and carefully, and someone in the end refuses to respond, it is in the end not me who has failed. Jesus wants me to know that. In the end, they have failed. It's their responsibility. It's sad and it's heartbreaking, but I've not failed. I've done what Jesus has asked me to do and I may well need to move on. And it may be difficult, those moments may be difficult. But if we're expecting them, it should take away one of the major obstacles to us proclaiming the kingdom. So let's pray now that it would do just that. Heavenly Father, uh, we do want to come before you 
confessing not just our, our lack of compassion, but our fear. And uh, you know how, it is, how we feel at that moment uh, when someone responds negatively or badly to us proclaiming the kingdom to them. And how horrific it feels, especially after many years of patient trying when there is no response. Uh, we just want to ask your forgiveness for allowing that to, to, to make us hold back from proclaiming the kingdom. Help us to be better prepared for those moments. We do pray for the compassion on people. But we also pray you'd give us an understanding of the urgency of the task. That we might be bringing this news to many, many people and doing it quickly. Lord, we commit all these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.